Eight leading U.S. banks have now been hit by denial-of-service attacks, and more are expected. The institutions targeted so far have continually said that no account information or other sensitive data was compromised or exposed during those attacks. But how can they be so sure? Jason Malo, research director at CEB Tower Group and web security expert formerly with VeriSign, where he focused on DDoS attacks, says there are steps institutions and other organizations can take to not only monitor their traffic for suspicious activity and potential fraud events, but also lessen the impact these attacks have on site accessibility and user experience. Hi, I'm Tracy Kitten with Information Security Media Group, and I'm here today with Jason Malo, now a financial fraud and security consultant with Tower Group, who shares insights into what he sees are the must-haves and next steps every organization and institution has to consider for DDoS protection. Jason, the recent attacks that we've seen waged against some of the country's largest financial institutions have all been categorized as distributed denial service attacks, otherwise known as DDoS. But DDoS attacks comprise a wide range of vectors and outages, not just those that flood site traffic. Can you give us some background about what a DDoS attack actually is? Absolutely, Tracy. Thanks. So denial of service certainly is just what it says it is. It's an attack that's meant to deny resources to someone. And and most traditionally, this has been looked at in sort of the consumer environment where a website is hit with a denial of service attack, which renders it unavailable to sort of its normal, typical clientele, right? So I, I think the key thing here that really needs to sort of be brought forth is that DDoS attack, while characterized as sort of these massive volumetric overwhelming of critical resources are not just blunt instruments. They are not just flooding internet pipes and pounding on web servers until they fall down. There's actually a wide range of different attack types at every place in the delivery of those services. So you can have attacks that are going after and trying to flood your internet pipes. Right? You can have attacks that go after the amount of processing power that any one of your web application servers may have or something like that. Or you can have things that look to exhaust the number of sessions that your application can have in place, can put a taxing amount of traffic on the amount of images and content it's able to deliver back out. Essentially, any point where you need to have those resources inputting into that, that information stream going back and forth between your consumer base and yourselves is subject to exhaustion. And, and really, denial of service attacks aren't just going after one thing, and they're not just hammering on your resources. They're looking to exhaust those resources in sometimes very sort of tactical ways. And then, Jason, can you tell us a bit about your experience in the DDoS realm and how you've seen DDoS attacks evolve in recent years? So 2009, I actually went to market with a, a service at, at VeriSign. It was cloud-based service and really was meant to sort of address what we were seeing uh, on the Internet and, and the volumetric sort of attacks that were coming in that were looking at different pieces that people hadn't really thought about. Certainly bringing to bear massive amounts of attacks that flood internet pipes, that was really important. But also Verisign was very in touch with DNS infrastructure and had a, a deep understanding of, of DNS as a, as a critical point in delivering a customer's desktop to the, the resources that they need to. So when we went to market, it was a very cloud-based solution that was meant to handle these volumetric attacks, if you will, the large, massive-scale attacks that overwhelm resources where it's not really financially you know, feasible for institutions to provision to such a massive scale. So typically, you know, institutions will look at, here's how much traffic we normally see. 
here's kind of four X of, of what that is to deal with spikes, and then maybe we'll add a couple on top of that. It doesn't make sense to do a thousand X of what their normal traffic pattern looks like. So there's almost an outsourcing aspect, if you will, to cloud-based DDoS protection where you can handle some of those volumetric attacks. And, and that's really where we started. The attacks, though, have evolved into a few different flavors. And, and, you know, you hear things like slow loris is sort of being the fact that is meant to mimic normal traffic and do so at such a small level that it seems to just sort of integrate itself within the expected traffic before it starts to really uh, exhaust those resources. And so there's a much more sort of nefarious low-level attack there. As the breadth of the attacks has kind of started to ramp up, you get the large network-level attacks, then you get those smaller application attacks. It's really become something where if you want to be able to protect against all of them, you've got to be able to not, not only understand that traffic coming in and out of your network, but also what that traffic looks like. So that's one thing that's really marked the evolution. The other thing that's really changed the evolutionary sort of flow of DDoS lately has been the motivations. Uh, Anonymous certainly has gotten a lot of traction in the last couple of years around their hacktivist view to this and how they can show sort of displeasure, if you will, with sites by taking them down. But there's also another piece of this where it kind of integrates within an expanded toolkit that attackers have, where if they want to weaken your defenses in one area, they can essentially make a really loud noise over here, get you to shift all your resources to fight that, and then hit it in another place. Sony was actually a really good example of this with the attacks that they sustained. From a financial services perspective, that evolution really has driven a lot of the conversations now. In the beginning of my tenure at Verisign, I had actually had a lot of conversations, and the main question that they asked was not, is this a problem, not, does your solution fix this, but why would anybody attack me? I think that conversation has really changed over the last few years. What's unique or different about this recent wave of attacks that we've seen over the course of the last four weeks relative to the DDoS attacks that we've seen in the past? Of course, we've heard that the amount of traffic coming in has been more than any site could really handle and that the amount of traffic that we've seen hitting a number of these bank sites is really unprecedented in the marketplace. But what nuances have been identified in these attacks, Jason, that you know of? So one thing I would mention, first of all, is that from a standpoint of scale complexity of the attack, this isn't really new or unprecedented. To my understanding, these attacks have been in the range of 90 gigabit per second DNS reflector attacks. There have been larger attacks that have been measured on the Internet, and DNS reflector attacks are not a new phenomenon. So from a standpoint of the pure sort of uh, approach to the attack, it really isn't something new. I think what's certainly interesting uh, and, and different about these attacks, one of the key concerns that uh, information security officers within companies have is sort of state-sponsored attacks, so the organizational aspect to it and uh, what is perceived to be an attack on essentially you know, U.S. critical infrastructure. Fighting a 90-gigabit DNS reflector attack is no small so certainly, even though it's not been something that's seen before, it, it does cause uh, quite a bit of turmoil. And, and I think what we did see is, is some you know, levels of success in, in fighting this. Maybe sometimes forgotten is that there have been slowdowns, there have been outages. Certainly some financials have been affected more than others. But I think the ones that have dealt with it the most successfully have been the ones who knew what they were going to do. Again, we kind of talked about the distraction aspect of you know, how DDoS can create just a, a massive amount of traffic and sort of distract your resources, financial institutions that have focused on who is going to deal with the attacks and what resources, not just people, but what resources are going to be leveraged that are going to be the most successful. 
I wanted to ask you, Jason, also about DNS server or domain name system server attacks. Do you see these DNS server attacks as being a more sophisticated type of DDoS attack? There's sort of a different level of sophistication with a DNS attack versus maybe something that is a little um, more targeted to a specific web application, let's say. I think DNS attack, there are a couple things I would really mention there. One is that the nature of this one is that it was a, a reflective attack or, or an amplification attack. So uh, the, the concept here is that when you send a request to a DNS server, it's a relatively small packet, small size uh, request. The response, however, can be up to 70 times larger than the original request. So think about it if, if a, and this is all strictly hypothetical, but if a DNS uh, request is one kilobyte, the response is going to be 70 kilobytes. So it's amplified the attack significantly so someone can create a large amount of traffic with a small amount of outbound. So I think that's one thing that really makes this a little bit scary, if you will. The the other piece to this is that it's it's much harder to apply straight filtering. If, if you think about this in terms of I'm going to block bad and let in good, filtering on DNS is a bit harder just because there's not the same level of complexity there. And so really kind of approaching DNS, the first thing you want to do is, is have volume, be able to just answer a ton of, of DNS requests. And if that's not enough, you can't bring that to bear through an outsourced solution, then getting into the ability to, to filter is certainly important. Now, Jason, you mentioned that one of the recent attacks was a DNS attack, or you believe it to have been a DNS attack. Would you think that both waves of attacks that we've seen over the last four weeks were DNS server attacks, or was there one specific that you were referring to? I believe the larger ones, certainly the ones that have gotten the most amount of focus, have been those large-scale DNS attacks. But it certainly is important to recognize that, again, there are many flavors of DDoS attacks, and a lot of times the ones that are hardest to deal with are the combined ones where you have a very large, loud, if you will, volumetric attack that is easy to see, and you align your resources to that, and you effectively mitigate that attack, but your site doesn't come back up. And the reason is because there are others that are going on at the same time. There are smaller scale attacks that may be going after SSL sessions or the like. So while I think, and, and most of the information that I have is around those DNS attacks, typically smaller ones are the ones that are harder to detect within your, your mitigation strategy. And so dealing with the larger ones will then lead you into a greater level of inspection. This type of attack really isn't new. In fact, you've told me in the past when we've had previous discussions that vendors specializing in DDoS protections actually predicted these types of DNS server attacks several years ago. Is this type of attack catching institutions off guard or do you think that institutions are aware of this type of attack? I think that institutions are aware of those types of attacks, and, and certainly, to your point, the, the information that I have presented had actually predicted attacks of this particular nature up to 120 gig uh, as, as early as 2006. So, so certainly, it's well understood what they can do. I think the level of unpreparedness has been more around the original risk assessment and the cost of scaling to deal with something like this. If, if you're looking at a way to mitigate DDoS strictly as matching volume for volume, I think that's where it ends up becoming hard to create that sort of business case justification. Um, I talked about how uh, companies usually will sort of scale their ability to, to handle traffic based on what their normal traffic patterns look like and, and then ensure that they've got a little bit extra. With this, it's a significant amount extra, 
And the numbers don't tend to work out if, if you're looking at scaling to that significant level. So I think it's been an understood threat. However, the, the risk wasn't really there. The motivations, quite frankly, on the attacker side weren't there. And now the, the risk profile has really changed. I think that this is something where there are solutions out there to deal with these types of attacks such that banks don't have to put in a huge, huge investment of capital to be able to put mitigation in place. Yeah, that's a great point. And I wanted to ask you about, well, first and foremost, what other types of DDoS attacks or variant of a DDoS attack might we expect to see next? And then I wanted to talk a little bit about the types of protections that institutions should be investing in. We can look at this, and, and generally it's talked about in a couple of different ways. One one is sort of a network-based attack, which if I can kind of use a metaphor here, so if you count the number of cars uh, that are entering the parking garage at work, you know, you've, you've got a good sense for how much traffic you have, right? And, and you can certainly do something at that level. And then you could do something to say, well, just inspecting the car as it goes through, I can tell that it's red and it's a sedan and, and those types of things. So kind of doing things at a network level are, are about volumes and, and kind of understanding some of the general of that data and understanding where it came from, where it's going, and, and what it looks like and how it behaves. Then you get into sort of some application-like attacks, and it's more important to understand what's actually going on inside the packet and understanding, so if there's something underneath the car, in the backseat, you know, in the trunk, what's actually as part of that delivery mechanism. So when you start looking at a combined, a defense-in-depth approach to these attacks, first I think we'll see certainly a lot more volumetric ones in terms of the ones that we're aware of. But I think some of the other ones that we need to be mindful of, certainly financials need to be mindful of, is the, the ones that are looking to sneak in under the radar. They're much more difficult to detect and really require a much greater investment and in understanding of what the traffic looks like and what it is doing, even at the point of beyond your network, what's it doing inside of your network. And, and not only understand how many packets are coming in and you know, what color they are, if you will, and where they're coming from, but also what is actually in the payload and being able to understand that if you see something that is outside of the norm, not only from just a volume perspective, but from a uh, amount of traffic on your website perspective, that whole understanding of what your traffic looks like is really going to be key. And so what about protections or detection technologies that institutions should be investing in? It sounds like they need to be investing in layers of security, which we come back to time and time again when it comes to fraud prevention. This certainly is a great example for uh, a cloud approach and, and most specifically a hybrid approach where if you're talking about those network layer attacks, having something that can provide you with the volumetric approach. So if, if someone is hitting you with a significant amount of data, there is benefit in meeting volume for volume. And if there's a way to to augment that through a, a public cloud infrastructure where you don't need to crack open the packets, if you will, and get into any kind of deep inspection, there's absolutely benefit there. However, there's also the need to be able to open those things up and understand what traffic looks like in a much deeper layer and so that really requires something that can you know have the ability to decrypt those packets and actually see what's going on so the latter would certainly suggest that a specific you know premise based or private cloud let's say implementation that is doing that level of inspection or can be brought to bear immediately to do that inspection is is really important the optimum approach to that ends up being if you've got a premise based private cloud solution let's say 
that can do initial layers of inspection, can understand what's happening, and then if the volume gets to exceed what you're capable of dealing with, then you can pass that into a public cloud and, you know, a scaled infrastructure and send some of that information back to be able to handle that volumetric piece of it. So certainly combined approach to DDoS and, and a specific approach to DDoS, I would say, as well. One of the things that I have heard and seen that does not work is retasking resources that were intended for one thing to another, and, and specifically IPS, IDS solutions, which are meant to look for intrusions, being tasked to handle DDoS may help your DDoS mitigation strategy, but it's going to weaken it in another area. So the thing that you bought those IPS, IDS solutions for is not going to be working for that anymore. So you've just weakened that level of defense. And then if you look at the motivations, that's a pretty clear motivation for weakening your defense in the area that really is going to do some significant damage. One of the things that we've heard time and time again over the course of the last four weeks is that no financial data or account information was compromised during these attacks. But how can institutions really be so sure? I believe the ones that have been attacked have been kind of down this road before and have the ability to understand where the attack is occurring what the target of the attack is, and and an understanding of of where there's a potential for collateral damage. So, you know, a lot of the denial-of-service attacks are focused on websites. They're focused on the public face of of the company. And, you know, the attack going down renders it unavailable to anyone, essentially, right? It's not meant to get data. It's meant to make it unavailable to everyone. So financial institutions understanding what the traffic pattern looks like, not only around the denial of service attack, but on their more critical sort of lifeblood, if you will, data transfers, there's a separation of responsibility that I believe that these institutions have really sort of outlined to say, here's how we fight the attacks, but also let's ensure that we can actively and definitively track any of the money movement that's actually going on, any of the personal information that may be anywhere near this particular attack are well understood and are are locked up. So I, I really think the separation of responsibilities and ensuring that people who are tasked with DDoS and the other people with those responsibilities for protecting that information stay where they are and do not realign resources away from those levels that they need to focus on. And then what about behavioral analytics? What role do you see behavioral analytics playing here when it comes to analyzing some of the traffic patterns or looking for anomalous behavior? Uh, this is actually, I think, a really interesting time to start talking about some of that because there's a lot of focus around big data. And I think it's incredibly interesting only if they can start to get some deep analytics out of it. And so I think that the ability to really start to call that information on a large scale and and coalesce it into what that traffic looks like, what it means, and what may be anomalous, even if you get past some of those layers of security and past the checkpoints, understanding what's happening within your network, not necessarily just at the, the ingress and egress points. There's a huge opportunity to not only understand what's good, and look for potential um, malicious behaviors within your network, but just to really be able to optimize those systems. And and so I think there's a huge amount of opportunity there, above and beyond even just the intrusion detection piece and and the uh, DDoS side of things. How does vendor management fall into this DDoS prevention fold, especially where cloud comes into play? I think the cloud's key, and uh, there have been some generalizations of of cloud. Uh, Some people have tried to sort of define what cloud is, and and recently FFIEC said that cloud was was outsourcing. Some people have said that was too narrow a view, but from the perspective of denial of service, it's actually pretty close, where if you've got a volumetric attack and you can only deal with a certain amount of data, 
a cloud provider is really going to have both the scale, DNS, bandwidth, et cetera. Most of those providers are set up to be able to bring those resources to bear at a moment's notice. The limits, I think, that you may have with the, uh, a public cloud, if you will, a private cloud implementation, is the ability to get into those packets and really look at what they have. Most of them can do it, but when you're talking about financial institution data, it's certainly a harder thing to to kind of go through there. And, and really, I think banks have some hesitation about a, a third-party vendor opening up those packets and doing inspection. That said, there are a lot of providers now who are specializing in DDoS and who are being used by some of these cloud vendors. So the ability to combine a cloud-based infrastructure that uses best-in-class as well as procuring that own best-in-class for yourselves creates a uh, solution from a cloud perspective that provides continuity, uh, both your internal and your external. So I, I think there's really a lot of different ways to mix and match that, and, and this is one of those places where a hybrid cloud certainly makes a lot of sense. Again, we've just heard from Jason Malo of CEB Tower Group. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tracy Kitten.